0: Charlie Goldenson welcome. What's up dude? Stoked. Thank you for being here. Stoked to be here. Fired up. Yeah. So you've heard bits and pieces about it, but this is what I call my passion project. This is just my opportunity to get together with cool people that are doing really good things and talk story. And generally what ends up happening, which is kind of the goal is you get to connect the dots. So even with you, um, which we'll talk a lot about today. um, I know a lot of the pieces, but I don't know the connection. And so Whoever the audience is, I know everybody in our family will be watching this. I don't know the three other people that will. But ultimately, it's all storytelling. And everybody that sits in that chair has a friggin' radical story. And yours is super cool. And you're the youngest. I mean, you've done a lot so far. And that's really what I wanted to capture. So, dude, stoked to rock and roll. Yeah, man. This is awesome.
1: This is also, like you said before, uh, I work around the space, but I've never been on that side Focused on, yeah. So it's funny having the headphones on and actually sitting at the table. Super cool, super uh, cool. I'm excited.
0: Rad. Well, as I alluded to, so we're family. So the, the backdrop here is is that we're first cousins. Our moms are sisters. My mom's the oldest. Linda, yours is twins. Dee Dee and Angie, your mom being Dee Dee, and there's 14 years spread between them. And then there's Aunt Pat and Uncle Steve in between, so the five of them. Um, we had mom in that chair two weeks ago. Right. Pretty rad. Um, and I've got like 20 plus years on you. So although we're first cousins, I'm closer in age to your parents than I am to you. Right. And you're closer to my kids than me, but that's all good. And ironically, where did you guys all go to college?
1: Oregon, university of Oregon. Duck. I got um, two ducks and you're a duck. Yeah. Which is funny. Cause at dinner the other night, Randy, your wife asked me, she's like, do you, does it make you happy to think that you kind of started this trend? And I was like, what? Like I had never thought, of, I just, oh. I had never thought about it like that. Like, you know, okay. like I was like, of course I thought about the amazing, beautiful connection that we were all sharing of experiencing Eugene and Oregon together, but never had I thought of it as like I knocked the first domino down. Well, like and
0: that's that. something that um, is really a cool way to look at it because, because of the generational spread, my kids look to you like a big brother or a big cousin. I know Jackson and Cole have always looked up to you and I like, it's just super cool to watch how that all kind of filters across our family cuz we have a super cool special family. But yeah, they definitely look up to you and that. So I think that definitely resonated with them in their decision-making process.
1: Yeah. But I mean, that's also like whether it's directly correlated or it's just the natural kind of the flow. Flow of our family. Like that's also how you and Doug were to me of like I'm an only child. I didn't have older, older siblings. Our family, at least my part of the family both on the workman side but also on my dad's side like we were all my family spread out all over the place so like not only did I not have siblings like I didn't have cousins around my aunts and uncles are all in Newport DC New York Wyoming so like um you know first like coming down to Newport was always like the closest I was with my actual family like blood family. We had, you know, amazing, beautiful family in San Francisco, but that was like my my parents, best friends and who became like my aunts and uncles. But coming down here when I was young, it was like, you guys were the closest things I had to older brothers. Right. And you guys, you know, fucked around with me and threw me in the water. And like, that was a very brotherly feeling. I would
0: do that. I don't think I could do that. anymore, Unfortunately, but I didn't
1: have that in any other place, you know? So like, it's nice to hear and think of, especially with your kids and Jackson and Cole, um, if they, f- if they feel that way, then I feel really great about that because that's sure. how I felt 100%. towards you guys.
0: And it's fun. I mean, and I just, when I spoke to my mom in that chair, like camp shoe line, like she's always been kind of the central, um, feature of her family. And she's like, well, I was the oldest, that was my job. And there was a big age gap, but it's been, yeah, that whole story about how they, how we all kind of came out to California by way of my mom kind of starting mm-hmm. that it's another whole cool story, yeah. which isn't a different one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, let me ask you this. Why are you in town right now?
1: Um, I'm in town right now for twofold. But one is I'm, um, my girlfriend is a ballerina. She uh, dances for American Ballet Theater, which is like the biggest, most kind of. Another
0: underachiever. <laughs>
1: yeah, of the, the kind of elite of the elite. Yes. Uh, Incredible. Ba- ballet of the, of the world. Um, they're doing Nutcracker down here in Costa Mesa, which for me, I used to live in LA. Obviously, when I was living in LA, Um, that provided me and all of us with like a kind of a new chapter of my life, where I really got to see all you guys and your kids like monthly, almost. And um, when I left LA four years ago, whatever that was, three years ago, which was for a new job, but also in the heart of COVID, it kind of went from seeing you guys every month to just like I haven't been back. So. Thank God for Paulina, thank God for her uh, her dancing here. But also I saw that and I was like, oh, this is a per- I need to get back anyway. Like this is great.
0: Well, it's always good to have you here because like you said, and we'll talk more about your flow of where you've lived and where you are today. Trust me, we'll get into all of that. But yeah, having Paulina, I didn't know if you were gonna share, but um, super impressive. Again, just you know, hearing her story, she <laughs> she would be another great interview because totally. she's been in that world since she was 16, if I recall. And uh, you know, at the peak of the peak of what's gotta be from both an accomplishment, but also the physical ability to do what she does is staggering,
1: so it would be really cool to, um, yeah, to have some dialogue a, around. It's really amazing. A, a radically different a radical life um, than anything I've ever yeah. known. And well,
0: my... and not to mention, you come from, and we'll talk about that in a second, but like, you come and you enjoy more of the, a gritty, urban experience growing up in the city. Mm-hmm. I think I heard you refer to yourself once before as like a city city kid, mm-hmm. um, insert brat, punk, whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Um, and now you've got this incredibly cultured tip of the, sp- like, it's really a, a big um, span of, of you. But I also think that that talks a lot about who you are. I mean, your, your evolution has been equally impressive and that's why you're here. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I don't want to jump ahead. I want to keep it flowing. But let me ask you this: Um, you know, it's the holidays. It it may not look like it because it's hot and beautiful out there right now, but it's the holidays. Um, I've been to a few Christmas parties. I'm sure you have. Um, Have you been to some Christmas
1: parties? (laughs) Uh, I've been to a few Christmas parties this year. I have a feeling. Anything notable? Yeah, I think I know what you're referring to. Anything interesting in yours? So I was at the. couple days, I can't remember when, or a couple of days ago it was at the White House Christmas party. Hold on, where? At the White House. The yeah. White House, like the one in Washington, D.C.? That one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what were you doing there? I was, um, I, well, I used to work there. Hold on, you used to work at the White House? <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, incredible, this is I had no fl- idea. This is a great yeah. flow, I appreciate Here we go. the flow. Um, I used to work at the White House, I used to be a staffer for the President, and for Which president Lady, the Bidens, um, the Bidens, to be very clear. Um, which was a result of me working on their campaign as a senior aide to Doctor Biden and the First Lady. Um, once we won, um, there was a, an offer made to me to, to shift into a transition role, which is the you know the period between the campaign and the White House is a is the transition capital T. It's a it's obviously a period, but it's also a, a legal entity of itself. So, campaign staffer, transition staffer, then within the transition, as we we're preparing the administration to get ready on January 20th. Um, Another offer was made to me to take a White House role. So um, yeah, worked in the White House and have like remained kind of in and around that world and I'm a former staffer so they invited a lot of us, kind of the closer staffers they liked to come back.
0: So we will dig more into the the whole pathway that got you there and actually more about that in detail because it's incredible, I mean what an incredible story. But tell us just, take the, just tell us the fun stuff that happened there. Like what's it like, I I can promise you the majority of people listen to this podcast and the majority of people that, you know, yeah, that aren't from that world have no idea what, uh, what it's like to be other than maybe a tour, a tourist tour. Like I've done a few times in the white house. What's it like to go have, I don't know,
1: whiskey in the West wing. Yeah. Well, so for the, for the party specifically. So for, so the party specific Christmas party context first is, um the job I had in the White House within, was in the East Wing. It was working for the First Lady. Now the East Wing is kind of a combination of like first lady policy work, um, but also the social office. And the social office is the office that designs the parties and the extravagant events for the White House, whether it's bringing in foreign diplomats, whether it's bringing you know heads of state from other countries and what those events will look like but from that all the way to these kinds of parties too. That was not my job, but like because I was in the East Wing with them, I just got to know them really well and we all became very close. Also, the people that I worked with in the White House and on the Biden campaign that I was super close with, the majority of us have left the White House by now. However, there's a, there's like a handful left, there's a ton left that I know that I'm buddies with, but there's a handful left like my really good friends. So, with that being said, um, when we went to this party, I brought Paulina was on tour down in Costa Mesa, so I ended up actually inviting Connor, one of my best childhood friends, um, like from you know we played baseball together when we were eight years old, and he, I invited him to be my date <laughs> to the White and House. I think party. you had
0: told me before that he's pretty, like this is a big friggin' deal. For
1: yeah, me. which is funny. And back to your point of like most people don't, you know, reminding me that most people don't haven't seen this world. No, most
0: of us don't know what happens in the totally, East Wing versus right, the West Wing. Right,
1: And like with, you know, with Connor, who again is one of my best friends, like Connor is not like a policy wonk. He's not a political nerd, right? Like he's not somebody who's been like spending his whole life hoping to get a tour of the White House. However, even as that being his person, when I first said this to him last year, actually that, hey, like, would you ever want to go to this, something like this with me? You know, he fucking lost it. He was like, Are you in? Of course. Like, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. So, this year, when Paulina couldn't go and I said, Formally, do you want to be my date to this thing? You know, he was giddy. And that, again, and where does he live? He lives in New York. He's okay. from San Francisco. Got it. Uh, we grew up in San Francisco, but he's from New York. But uh, so I, that's all to say that, like, you know, what was really nice about this party was I got to go there and I got to see my people and be back in the space that obviously is. An incredibly powerful and beautiful space but that for me was also you know it was my office like it was pretty normalized but to be able to bring a friend there who for him this was his first time seeing this yeah and not just seeing the physical space but also seeing my world within that seeing me interacting with my friends and my former co-workers and you know Biden administration officials and seeing the look on his face when he was just like where are you know, where are we what is going on I've known you since we were children and I've never seen this part of you kind of but still fit me feeling like well it's just me like it's the same shit you know it's just a different place that you kind of didn't have as much access to yes as I did. but yes but so the party itself was like you know you go in you wait in line for secret service secret service they let you in like two at a time like an airport there's like bomb dogs sniffing you as you walk in um you know it takes forever once you get in the first lady's office and the social office of like every corner of the white house is just like the most gorgeous Christmas decorations you've ever seen for people that don't know, because why would you know the the white house has its own carpentry office. That's open 24 seven for like this sole purpose. Like if the first lady says, you know, like when I was working there, I remember it was the day before Valentine's day and we realized very last moment that like we didn't have any like things or the first lady really shouldn't have anything planned for Valentine's day. So at like 10 PM, It's a twenty
0: four seven.
1: What's it? It's like it's a a carpentry. They can do anything. They can do anything. And so I do remember, like before Valentine's. I want one of those. So like ten p.m. Valentine's Day, the first lady's like, I want you know a dozen custom massive hearts that we put on the the north um, lawn of the White House by the morning, and we're all like, we're not okay. And then of course we show up to work the next morning and like the most beautiful custom you know twelve by twelve hearts painted cut out messages painted are like covering the warehouse. That was like what this Christmas party was, but it was like every inch, every room, trees, messaging, paintings, cutouts of like the dogs and the cats and presents, just gorgeous. Um, And you know, you walk around, you see all the decorations and you're kind of surrounded by a mix of like actually important people, but also like, you know, big rich donors who they invited to maintain relationships with and also former staff and people like me. And then you know, huge like any other kind of fancy. It's a very elaborate, big, big event and with some big hitters. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fancy holiday office party. Yeah. In an insane space. In an insane space. But
0: for the non-initiated, like the rest of us, it would be like a once in a lifetime, like for Connor. Yeah. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity for most people to go this is what it's like to have Christmas party in the white house. Right.
1: And instead of rubbing shoulders with like your CEO, you're rubbing shoulders with yes. the vice president or, you know, the secretary of education or the head of the DNC um, or celebrities There's a yes. ton of celebrities there. And of course, you know, the president comes out and gives a speech. Um, but because it's like a, a room of predominantly kind of like inner circle people, it's not a very political speech. It's just kind of like, a, hey, how are you? You know, nice to see you guys kind <laughs> of thing. A little less than formal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, all you can drink champagne and eggnog and stuff like that. Um, but the event itself is pretty short. Um, it's like two or three hours. And then uh, they kicked, they kind of kicked everybody out. And then out. the fun began. And then the fun began. They kicked everybody out. And one of my best friends from that time of my life, is name, Adam Schultz, who's the Head White House for the president's photographer, so he's one of the few staff who, um, you know, twenty four seven is on the president's hip. Whether he's, wow. you know, you know, reading memos in the Oval, or whether he's on a secret train through Ukraine to meet with Zelensky, like Adam is there, t- snapping photos, um, and as a photographer, where do you go from there? You don't, right? <laughs> a- well, well, I mean, that's what's so funny is like for a lot of us. You know the the white house is like it's it's certainly the pinnacle from like a you know the, it's it, it's definitely the pinnacle of like political work not in, not necessarily the place where you can have the most impact right but like in terms of like how high an elite can you get how, how braggadocious can you be like there's nowhere higher than the white house i was the president's photographer like, yeah but for uh, but that's the thing like yeah. right? but like we could also like you know, me now. I don't work for the White House. I don't work for the president. But I have all these other jobs that I, I love and that I feel amazing about and that are more exciting to me in certain ways. If you're a political photographer, like there is nothing. There's, there's, to nothing. there's so no way. There's nothing. So for route. him, you know, when we are all start when we all started leaving, um, he was like, "I'll see you see you guys later." Like, I'm not going fucking anywhere. So, um, <laughs> so you know, he, he you know grabbed me and said, "No, like, we're not." When when they kicked everybody out of the party, he said, "We're staying." And so I got to grab Connor and say, we're staying. And we ended up, you know, staying there and kind of closing the place out with other staff. And then Adam's office is in the West Wing. He's the photographer's office in the West Wing. So we walked. Now Now the White House is, like, empty. <laughs> and we get to walk Connor around. We got to show him the, the oval. We got to show him, you know, where the situation room is. Um, That's incredible. And, uh, and then we end up going into Adam's office, which is... Um, it's it's a, it's a his, again he's the photographer so his office is covered in like literally every inch is covered in prints in a very um, disorganized way what looks to me as disorganized of like photos from every event the president's every ever done and it's crazy and it makes perfect sense knowing where you are you're like I am in the White House photographer's office in the West Wing I understand what I'm looking at however like it's a room where if you walked into that room and it was anywhere else if that was a hotel room or. You know, some place in yeah. some random suburban basement, like the Secret Service would have showed up instantly. <laughs> and to, like, it's well, like a is. beautiful mind, right? It's that's literally <laughs> what I said when I showed up there. So it's like insane, oh but because God. you're there, it's incredible. And you know, Connor walked in and was just like, "This is ridiculous." And so we ended up, me, Adam, and Connor just sitting in the West Wing, uh, you know, kind of sucking down bourbon. Yeah, uh, yeah but it was just great. You know, we sat in the the West Wing and drank bourbon and kind of a shared war stories, but also it was more of just, I kind of sat back like Adam, you know, that Adam's job is insane. How big is the West wing? Um, like when you say the West wing,
0: it's not like the oval, we know the oval, oval is one room is one within room. the West Wing. West wings. Yeah. Big.
1: I mean, we've all seen it on it's TV. That's a, probably the
0: extent of it. It's not
1: enormous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you've got the West wing. I'm sorry. You've got the oval and you have kind of a handful of other, meeting rooms, like the cabinet room is in there, where, where cabinet secretaries come and meet each other for the cabinet meetings. Um, And you have a, co- a couple of conf- conference rooms, the president's senior advisors work in there, the like h- communications department for Got the it. president live, work in there, and then underground, there's like a dining hall, white photography office, and uh, a few other things, but, it's, it. not, but it's not very big. You,
0: but so you and Connor and a couple people sat around in the West Wing on after the Christmas party and had to got to have drinks and got to
1: have drinks and hang out. That's yeah. And then we, cool. we left probably two hours in. And,
0: Most of us yeah. don't get that opportunity.
1: That was when, when you
0: told me that story the other night, that's when I'm like, all right, Hey, I'm going to get you in the chair because I've always, you were at the top or in my list because of your life experience and work experience. But when you're like, Oh, guess where I was for Christmas? Like it's just, yeah. it's hard to top. Super cool. Yeah. Um, cool. We're going to get deeper into the whole political thing. Cause obviously that is a big part of, of your life and it's, been evolving in different ways, um, but let's talk about like the beginning. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned San Francisco. Tell us, you grew up in San Francisco. Your dad grew up in San Francisco. Um, Dad's from New York. Oh, he's actually. from New York.
1: Yeah, he's a New Yorker. I just know
0: him from his like Deadhead times in in the city.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I bet if you said that to him, he would be like, "I was never a Deadhead." Cause I don't oh, think. He, but but you know, he moved true. there in oh, I, I don't know if it was '69 or if it was right after. But you know, he moved there early and um. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm born and raised in San Francisco. Like you said, like city kid. That's kind of still. If somebody, somebody, a buddy of mine a couple months ago, we're having a similar conversation. He's like, "How would you describe yourself?" Which I'd never been asked. And the first thing that came to mind was like, well, at my core, it's just like a city kid. And like, I don't, you know, to me that just means like everything that comes with the experience of kind of getting the social education that is gifted upon you when you grow up in a place like that. Yeah. Um,
0: well, and you've followed that. I mean, you, yeah. what's, I want to get back to San Francisco sure. in a minute, but where are you now? Just kind of walk us through where you've been and it'll kind of reinforce that you've stayed with that kind of urban focus. Yeah.
1: For the most, I mean, I'm in New York city other now. than Eugene, Oregon, Eugene Oregon, Wilmington, Delaware, which is, I was there for a while too right. for Biden campaign, but um, I'm in New York city. I'm on the lower East side. Now I was in DC before New York, Delaware briefly for a campaign stint. Before that, Los Angeles for many years. Before that, uh, obviously San Francisco. Before that, um, yeah. I, for me, I just—it's not that I think a city is better than a non. It's not about better or worse. Just for me, it's where I'm the most comfortable and just where it makes I'm just happy. I like I'm attracted to chaos. I'm comfortable in chaos. I like congestion. I like options. I like having the ability to get lost within chaos and I also for me you know I'm an only child I it's very necessary and therapeutic for me to be alone a lot of the time Not, not but have solitude I really value and need solitude and while some people spend a lot of their alone time out in the ocean or out hiking or whatever for me my ocean is like deep Jackson Heights, you know, where I feel like I'm in another country, right? Like, and just being there alone and just wandering and tasting and smelling and eating and, you know, going to shops and restaurants and just to me, that's what is so exciting about a city is it, c- it can bring the world to you. Um, well, it's funny. We're sitting here
0: because there's been all these noises. There was a truck out there. There's for you. That's like you, that's probably your, you probably sleep better with all that kind of, Oh, 100%. Um, All that noise where the rest were like, no, we need to be quiet. We're we're, we're filming. Well, it's funny. My
1: my apartment in New York, which is on the lower side, which is like one of the kind of craziest, craziest in like the terms of just noise and nonsense in Manhattan, my apartment is like very blocked off from a lot of the noise because I have all these other buildings around me. And... I've had friends comment on that and like Pauline, I'm like, Oh, it's so quiet. It's amazing. And for me, I'm like, <laughs> I need no, like I need, I really prefer there was more noise. Like the, the kind of the quietness is almost like un- weird for me. It's, it's really interesting because
0: yeah. like when you talk to like Juliet, my sister-in-law um, who was in New York for a very long time, or my dad that grew up there and you just, it's so different f- for someone like me that's grown up in suburbia. Right. Where it's just everything about it's different. Yeah. yeah. But, um, and I think, Again, just connecting the dots, it seems like all the cities you've chosen for the most part, where you are today, what you like, kind of your, just your self-description shines a big light on it. And you talked about food and we'll get into that because I know that's another big part of it. And when you're in a suburb, your food's a little more boring perhaps. And when you're in a super tight urban environment, especially when you're surrounded by places like when you were living in Koreatown and in LA, like food is everywhere. Food's everywhere. Everything yeah. you can imagine, right? And so that's got to be... Both the like the catalyst and also something like you long and are drawn to I mean it's a time. huge
1: part of I mean like you know I would even say like like Newport or this area there's incredible food in Newport so for me it's like it's not even about that suburban spaces are lacking that they aren't it's just not as accessible you have to go drive there or you have to make a plan to get it right which is fine but to me that's a very radically different experience than saying like I'm gonna walk down I'm gonna take a five minute walk and like pass every possible cuisine I could possibly want. And like out of the 30 restaurants I'm walking by, six of those are actually like, you know, world star level, (laughs) like insane, like just as good as I might get in, you know, Thailand or something, right? Like that's, so a lot of, again, it's it's not just about the optionality, but it's about the accessibility that a city gives you also. Um, I think that was, that's where actually, you know, out of all the cities I've lived in, DC was the hardest for me to live in. I loved it, it was, a beautiful city and it was a very calm city, but it was a very calm city. Like that was a part of it that was hard for me. I felt like, um, I've said before that I, I, I feel like DC is like a perfect city for people who've never lived in a city before. Mm. It kind of has it has some food and it's got some bars, it's got some nightlife and it's beautiful, it's got public spaces, amazing museums. But like if you're looking for anything a little deeper. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, interesting because I, yeah. I would not have thought about that except for
0: my, the fact that I've got friends that own Stores and live there and I've spent a fair bit of time with them and I love the city but they tell the story because their businesses they've opened in what were those areas that were decimated by the riots 30 some odd years ago and so a lot of what was probably the more city-esque went away after all those big riots and when it came back it came back in a more gentrified way Mm -hmm. I think that's probably part of it but I'm not a historian well yeah I mean DC is
1: one of the most segregated cities in the country right like literally and um so you know I think there's all like my my, me saying oh it's a city for people who've never lived like that's also coming from a very privileged state of like there are black and brown families that have lived there for generations and generations where like that is it is an extreme urban existence but in a different way than I would define you know in a different experience than I've had
0: it's really um, interesting. But yeah. let's take it all back because we're talking urban. Let's go back to your roots, San Francisco, one of the most amazing cities in the U.S., but it's having, some, it's, having its day and not necessarily in a good way. But what was it like growing up there? You yeah. played sports. Um, your dad's a teacher. Your parents are amazing. So let's talk a bit about growing up, and you said it, as a single child in the city yeah. With parents that are very involved in different parts of the super city, super involved, yeah. And let's talk about your folks, and then what it was like growing up in the city, and then at the end, I'd love to get your thoughts on where yeah, the city yeah. is today and what it looks like. Yeah, in, I mean, in I, country.
1: I am, um, I, I am so grateful. Doesn't grateful is not? I don't know the word for it. Like, I am just the fact that I got to have that childhood experience of growing there in that physical place. Um, I just I value that. I'm so lucky. It really Um, shaped you, huh? It really shaped me, and I think like you know, part of that, of course, is the city itself, but it's also the environment I'm in, which is like you said. My dad is a lifelong educator, artist, activist. Um, My mom is also a lifelong activist. She you know has run nonprofits her entire career. Planned Parenthood, you know, beautifying city and urban spaces. Now she's a public policy consultant for you know a bunch of different organizations in, in the city, but um you know the family like I said because our f- blood family <laughs> however you want to say it was so spread out. Th- what my family really became at least in San Francisco was this community of my parents' best friends who were also very similar to my parents. They were artists. They were activists. They were educators. They were um, journalists and painters um and they were opinionated on the world and on politics and on art and like you know not in like a pretentious way It was just like that's that's what the world was and um you know and like with that i again it wasn't i think of it as san francisco but it was that community it's like when i was five years old i was Marching into protests with my parents, you know, and like part of that was because of the nature of San Francisco But like that was our community. It was like that was just what I knew and um, so to me, San Francisco always was and is hyper political hyper creative obviously physically beautiful um, and also just like hyper experimental and weird and funky and dirty in the best ways um, And like that to me is how I always see San Francisco is kind of through the lens of that community that we had, you know, now San Francisco is very tech driven as is the whole Bay Area. Um, Like you said, there's a lot of, you know, I think there's there's debate to be had whether some of the narratives are accurate or not, but a lot of them are, I think that some of them are fair at least. Um, And, uh, you know i think cities cities change places change that's the that's that's the natural state of urban environments or everywhere like like nothing will ever stay the same there will always be a natural metamorphosis i just think that san francisco had that evolution or change on a fast track because super magnified of tech. it was magnified all and it tech
0: and you throw in covid and the nature of all of those things right? yeah
1: and just you know like you know i mean a lot of places have these but like like i said like I picture San Francisco to me San Francisco is lower middle income people <laughs> making art having political discussions eating good food you know like being funky and weird like that to me is what San Francisco is and it always will be whether that's what people moving to San Francisco now see it as I don't know right um but that to me is always will always be what San Francisco is so anyway like that that really shaped me. Like even going to Eugene and going to Oregon, where when I went to Oregon, um, I went to study business, and like I didn't think about politics or social impact work. And uh, I started studying business, and I was doing terribly, and I wasn't interested in it. And like again, not to knock anybody who does that. Like I work in business now. Like that's it. Was just like at that time, it wasn't a path. And then all of a sudden, I just had this realization of like. Well, I, I, go, I like politics. I know a lot about it. It interests me. And I switched majors and all of a sudden, like I started crushing it in college. Um, and that's what kind of started me on this political path. But again, to me, a lot, that is, that is all, that all came from growing up in San Francisco. So let me ask you this you that, and community.
0: we'll get back to that. Thank you for that. Um, just to hit on it, cause you just brought it up. So you changed your major, not because you said I want to be back into politics, but you're like, I'm not really doing that well. I'm not really digging it. Yeah. What other did that, is that what made you stop and go, okay, well, what do I really want to do? Is that how it happened or?
1: Yeah, it was, well, so it was like, I went to a, um, we're Jewish, but I went to a Catholic pretty like hardcore sports factory, pretty kind of elite and frankly, pretty wealthy, uh, high school in San Francisco. And so a lot of my best friends who are still very good friends of mine, like a lot of them come from like Christian, uh, business centric. Um, pretty rich and like show-offy rich families. And again, that's great, it's just different than my unit of my family. And so when we all started to graduate, you know, I never, frankly, I never thought about, I was just like, yeah, I'm gonna study business. Like, that's what everybody does. Like, I just never thought about it, I just didn't. And, uh, cause everybody else is doing that. And um, yeah, I mean, it took, it took a term or two for, I mean, I, I remember sitting in my first class at work, my first business class, BA one hundred and one, and and just being like, oh man, like this is what it's going to be like, <laughs> like like okay, I don't know if this is interesting. So for you me picked right up now. on it that quickly, yeah. And and it was a combination of like I wasn't interested in it, and I was doing really badly. Like I just, I mean, I was partying a lot. All, you know, it wasn't just that. It was I was in college. I was at a state school. Like I was, I was having fun, but taking classes that I just felt like I had no interest in certainly didn't help. We
0: all tend to do better if we're passionate about something. Yeah, yeah. Because you want to be spending your time doing it, you're not just
1: being force fed and feel like you're obligated to go do it, right? Totally, and there was, to answer your question, all those things were part of the decision to like, well, maybe I should start taking classes that I'm more interested in. But it was also, frankly, it was like the timing of this was right during the, right when the Trump and Hillary election started to come up, right? It was like right after Trump announced. Um, or was about to announce and so it wasn't just my own kind of personal what am I good at what do I want to do oh I'm d- I took a political science class and I did pretty well maybe I should think more about that oh like it was also like you felt uh, compelled I've, I was be I was just on a personal level outside of school becoming more engaged right and uh, more aware and spending more and more of my time reading and involving myself and engaging and again it was it didn't I didn't realize that in the moment because to me, like that was the world I came from. It was like you engage when politics arise and you smell the, the scent of fascism in the air. Like you stand up, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I think just the, the 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 timing of like that Trump basically and frankly Bernie, like those two figures are coming. They lit a fire under you. Yeah. Or they just it just that the, com- the combination of becoming more aware of the world and engaging the world around me while also becoming more aware of what I, A, liked and didn't like in academia, but also what I was good at. Like, it wasn't just that I liked the political science and the applied economics or urban economics classes more. It's like, I did really fucking well in them. Like, I crushed them. And I was... I was going from like, I couldn't stand the idea from studying for a test to like spending four days in a row in the library, leaving parties to go to the library. Listen, if you I know? can,
0: if I can just stop right there and shine a light, if there is a testimonial for what college is supposed to do, that's it. Right. Right. College is supposed to expose our youth to what they love and what they hate and to fire them up to go down a path that maybe they didn't think that was the path they were going to go on. Just expose them to people and thought and 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 with an end game of ending up where you're supposed to be, which is doing something you really love, you're really passionate about. And that goes back to that adage, whether you believe it or not, um, if you do something every day that you love, you never work a day in your life. Now, that doesn't work for me because, you know, my my um, what was the the test that we took in high school? Basically, an aptitude skills aptitude. Well, I put on there I want to be you know, working hard. I want to be outdoors. And it came back said, Mark, you need to be a pool cleaner or a grave digger. I kid you not. Hmm. (laughs) Um, and then I went down the path of marine science and art because I was passionate about it. I did really good. I would get captivated in a project and it'd be two in the morning. And I was like, right. Wow. Yeah. Now I don't use those in my career, but I really got a lot out of the college experience because I was doing something that I was passionate about and engaged in and it got me thinking differently. But a lot of people don't, right? A lot of people are like, I need to get, a, my dad says I need to get a business degree or I'm going to totally. be an attorney or a doctor or whatever. So I, I
1: just, I just wanted to give you big props. Like that's where we hope our kids end up. Well, and also I'll just add to that. Like I did, I don't do a ton of this, but like I do, So I'll speak to some like, you know, high school classes or like middle schoolers about my career or about, you know, if they're interested in politics. It's
0: because you have an invitation to the White House, you've <laughs> yeah. got some cred. Well, let's
1: say it's a bunch of, you know, like kind of like civics nerds like me who like, like you want to know about how you like, I've spoken to classes like that and like a question that is like constant among these kids, whether they're 12 years old or 16 or whatever is like, you know, what if I, you know, what do I do if I don't know what I want to do? Basically, like, is that okay to go to college and like not really know yet? And to me the answer is like please have no fucking idea what you want to do. Like that's what the best thing you can hope for is to go into an experience like that with absolutely no fucking idea what you want and then you can find it. And guess what? Like maybe you even don't find it in college, but you've had all these tastes and and you've been able to experience all these things and like it will come. Like like you will find what interests you. But I think the most dangerous version of that is the is the opposite, which is like you said is to be 14 and have had some mission or direction or you know something drilled into your head. That you must be that X. you must be, and maybe you're lucky, right? Maybe you're like Paulina, where it's like that actually happens to completely match. Like you are, all I want to do is dance. But you know, if it's like, so that is rare, also that is very rare. I think ex- ex- exception for people that the, have it, because I was that person that's
0: like I right. Like right. I said, I got degrees that have nothing to do with what I do in business. Right. They gave me a great education. I worked super hard, right. but I did really well once I fell into those, right. But I also look at like cousin Matthew. So my nephew, right. he got a soldering iron for he wanted to solder when he was like four years old, mm-hmm. and he's working at Intel building chips. Um, he that was his lane from totally. day one. Loves it, passionate about it?
1: Not me. Yeah. yeah, I guess right, I guess it's more just like. Do not allow that to be a concern of yours. Yeah, it's like, a great one. It, it'll and come. hopefully parents buy it'll, into that. Yeah, right. Like it'll because yeah. sometimes it's top down. Well, and also again, like, look at me. I mean, like, I went to a state school. It was not the greatest school in the country. It was an average state school. There's a lot of partying. There's a lot of drinking. You know. I played rugby there like I Hold on. Are my kids partying a lot? Is that what you're saying? Probably, (laughs) but that's a good thing. They're doing, you know, they're they're doing their thing Oh, I've been to some of those parties. yeah. Yeah, but um, I guess my point is like I was not even once I found my thing It wasn't like all right screw everything else. I am just a bookworm now. It was like you know, I allowed myself to enjoy myself And like, thank God for that. Like, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I'd be where I am now if I hadn't had also had that ability to say like, I have the things I care about and I have the things that I have fun with and sometimes they cross and sometimes they don't and I'm going to do all of it. Work hard, play hard, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: The world's a big, I mean, just like moving from city to city, there's a lot out there Um, and getting out there and traveling a lot and seeing a lot and experiencing a lot of things. And sometimes you're like, I never need to do that again. You're like, holy moly, I didn't even know this existed. I want to go do it. Right? Because... Talk real quickly, again, I I just, I love your story. You mentioned that your school was like a sports factory. Yeah. Um, And you played two sports
1: at the elite high school level. What did you play? I played, yeah, I I played football and baseball for like one of the top schools in the state in California, basically. Captained both teams. so funny.
0: And we were always like... So proud of you and we were all expecting you to go to
1: some D1 school and well, scholarship and that, type of thing. That was my goal. You know, like even, you know, since football came up in high school, I didn't start playing football until high school, but you know, my dad was a football player. He played, he played college D1 ball. Like, I, you know what? You know, I never knew that. Played at Harvard. What? Yeah. Yeah. He only See, played this.
0: That is why we're here. Yeah. Those are the dots. Like
1: I had no idea. Yeah. He, didn't, he only played a, a, a couple of years, matter. but he stopped. But, but yeah, no, he, he was, was at just, Harvard and he played D1 ball. Oh yeah. Freak athlete. I like him even. Dan,
0: I love you you a little little bit more
1: now. No, badass. Love that. You would never know. He's the softest spoken, nicest guy in the whole world. He's a lineman. Really? Yeah. He's like five nine lineman. Dang. I had no idea. But uh, no, I mean, I always the goal, which again I think is one of the reasons I got to college and had never thought about what major I wanted because up until then, from the age of like you know five to eighteen kind of like or 17 like division 1 baseball was like it and uh and um the reality was you know I've talked about kind of with G with 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 Johnny like how I felt about it was like I'm either going to go full speed ahead with this like it's either it's D1 or nothing on or off yeah G1 G1's I have the no same I have basketball. no ability to yep. go I'm not going to fucking do club like that's not happening like I'm either fully I'm committing to this thing 1,000% or I actually have no interest in it, I'm gonna like go explore. My- so
0: in hindsight, it was probably fairly heartbreaking because you were team captain, like- again, Totally. Italy, and everybody thought it was kind of a foregone conclusion. And we're like- The offers just didn't come. Yeah. Like they just didn't come. Now and it thinking was, yeah. about that, do you think it would have changed anything with where you are today had you been playing D1 ball?
1: 1,000, yeah, 1,000%. 1, Not just, I mean everything, My my, you know, like, Oregon wasn't just great because I got to find my interest in politics. <laughs> it was great because it was like it was Eugene. It was like a crazy fucking place where you know snowboarding was one hour this way, the beach was an hour this way, Portland was one hour that way. It was like basically like it was Oregon, but it was it was a ton of like all, a lot of my best friends now are from Southern California because for some reason a ton of Southern California kids go to Oregon. So like. Oregon was also just an opportunity for me to like build this incredible, another place where I built an amazing community. And uh, so yeah, no, I would, I wouldn't, I don't think I would be, my life would be completely different if I played a sport in college, whether it was at Oregon or it's that sliding doors thing. You never know.
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I tell, I tell reef my youngest story all the time, but it's this like Chinese proverb thing. And it's like, Oh, my cow got stolen. Okay. Yeah oh, they brought it back and they brought another one. Okay, yeah. like you just never know where life's gonna take you and you just kind of have to roll with it. I mean, you can, you can make a lot of things happen, but there's some things you're like, had I not been, like when I re-met Randy, my wife, like she was, had I not gone to the bar on a date that night, would, I, would we end up where we are today? Right. You never know. Yeah. So one would like to think that it was all
1: it all happened for a reason. Because where you are today is pretty rad, um, well, but I, and just not to cut you but like no. the thing I would add to that is like, I'm you know I'm curious how you feel about this in your work like, you know something I feel very strongly about is like, th- how much sports prepared me, for the professional world not just sports like team sports but also like high level the ability to be coached and to learn and to take. Constructive criticism and not take things personally and to like get beaten into the ground and like get back up um, You know Everything but like that to me is like like to this day I feel like I can be in the workplace and I can talk to somebody and I can tell like that person never played a sport or like They never played a team sport like there's just there's professional skills or social skills that you need in the professional world to succeed that I Think are so I'm so another. I'm just so lucky that like sports gave me that. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I'm I, you know, captained every team I ever played on. Like, I think there's a reason that my career has kind of like I've ended up in very senior advisory roles to massive teams. You know, my jobs have always been about advising the principal, um, liaising between the principal and the rest of the team and staff. I think all of that has come, came from a comfort level that was built in one million, sports. percent agree with 100%. you on. that. And,
0: and I had never thought about that before attached to you, nor have I reflected on it for me because I didn't play team sports for that long. Right. I was never elite. I, got, I didn't get good at stuff till I started doing my solo stuff, which but the things that I think the commonalities are discipline,, yeah. consistency, yeah. grit, you know, tenacity. The difference is I was never coached at an elite level. Um, I share this story all the time. I say it to the kids, I say it at work, but I always say, you know, you will remember your best coach and your worst coach, mm-hmm. your best teacher, whatever it is, mentor, teacher, coach, whatever it is. And then you have a choice. And I always emulate, and I always suggest people emulate your best coach or teacher and, you know, use this one as fodder for how not to interact with people, How you know, so you learn just as much from both. Everybody in the middle is kind of vanilla, mm-hmm. right? I, I say this quote all the time, I've said it on here. Cole's like, yeah, I've heard this before. Um, but it's so important to be coachable and to be comfortable communicating with others. So I, I would everything you just said I think is just dead nuts on. Your ability early on to get all that leadership experience, being a liaison, being coachable and understanding what, what does coachable mean? I think back on my team members, the best, oftentimes the ones that are the best are the ones that are like, give me feedback. I Mm want to hear, I want criticism, please give it to me in a way that I can consume it without feeling terrible. But like some people, they never think that they're coach. They, they don't think there's anything that they could do any better. Right. So all of that comes from your, I think you just nailed it. I really do. So much
1: of, so much of good coaching is really just about honesty. It's like, can you be honest with somebody, good or bad? But there's, a, there,
0: but there's, there's a, a, a requirement to be able to present things in a way that is received in a way that is beneficial, right? Like totally. my worst coach, he went on to be Olympic coach. Right. He's, not that he's not a good coach. Right. He was a terrible coach for me. He was a dick. Yeah. And, you know, as a result, I hated the sport. A good coach... Hopefully, potentially could have helped me fall in love with the sport. Right. I, I wasn't that bad. I just, that guy just, he did not know how to lead me totally as a kid.
1: Yeah. 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 It's a shame. I mean, that, that was, you know, my high school, which again was like, still is one of the kind of like athletic elite institutions of California, specifically Northern California. Um, what's the name of that school? St. Ignatius College Preparatory, you know, like kind of, there was Asa, there was Us, there was Bellerman, there was, you know, um all yeah. these just, just massive big, hitter big hitters. Schools. Um but um, you know, what's a shame is like my the worst coach that I ever had that to your point, like I don't rem- I had a thousand coaches in every sport. I only remember a couple of them. And I know one of my worst coaches I ever had was the St. Ignatius varsity baseball coach. Like he was just horrible. And uh not much to say beyond 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 to your point of like that's what sticks in my head, right? Like it isn't the like, oh they were great. It was like, no, that guy was Horrendous, and it's a shame that he's the one I have to remember because I'm sure there's a dozen fantastic coaches that I had that just I'm not remembering. But they weren't his. Fantastic. His his inability to lead and to coach and to you know message uh, was awful. Um, But yeah, yeah, I can't.
0: And that translates to work every day, and that's what I talk about with my team. Like, be a great leader. Like some people don't understand what that is, so we have to help them there. We can provide coaching. That's why I'm passionate about providing coaches to our leaders because not everybody's had a coach um, or maybe they had bad coaches or bad example role models. So I'm a huge believer in providing that night. That's why I use a coach every day. And yeah. so whenever people say, Oh, I don't need it. I'm like, show me a professional athlete that doesn't have
1: a coach. Yeah. And you know, well, and also like, you know, I haven't seen you in the zone at work, but like I have a sense for what you are at work, which is like, you're, you continue to be very much yourself. Yeah. And like, that's you know how I am too. Like I, there is no separation in personality or character when I am emailing or in a meeting versus when I'm here. And I think a lot of that comes from the coaching as well. Like, but also you know, I also think that's been one of the. I'm, I'm kind of going like this, but like back into the political conversation, the political career conversation. You know, I I I, raised <laughs> up. If that's the right way to say, like pretty quickly in my career in this world of like democratic politics and like where I was unique in that beyond just kind of the pacing was that like democratic politics is filled with a lot of people who like have spent their entire lives like trying to get into democratic politics. Like they shape their lives to be these people that are oper- often like hyper vanilla and Curated and careful and therefore when you end up at these higher levels of this industry and that politics is still an industry It's a lot of very similar Molds,
0: so I'm guessing a lot of those people don't like you because you just showed up and blowed up
1: I think a lot of people don't hold me accountable to I my think a lot so. of people I think there's probably a lot of people who don't didn't like me, but I think a lot of it was like Not like jealousy, but it was kind of like wait a second surprise. Like, yeah, like how the fuck? I thought I had to do it like this. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the reason that I, that pe- that I moved so quickly was frankly, like people fucking liked me. Like it was just about people like, I could under- work with people and I wasn't, you know, a robot and all, and that was rare in that world, that especially crazy? when you're working with like, hyper powerful, super powerful global leaders. People are very mechanical. And I came in and I was like, I can be serious and good at this and get the work done. And like, be myself and like take it or leave it, and like very quickly, I think people saw that and they liked. It's endearing. It. It's endearing. It's valuable. If totally. you don't have people like that on your team, like that is a very helpful thing to have. And
0: to have the the EQ to recognize that is super potent. Like that's a it's a strong skill, and it's it's a, maybe a stronger skill to understand that that's how it works. Because as you said, a lot of people think you have to do it this way, and you're like, no, 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 just be a, a good person, work hard, have the right, you know, know how to read a room, know mm-hmm. how to talk to the right people. And get your shit done on time and 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 be impressive. Yeah. But you don't have to be impressive in a bullshit way. Be impressive in a authentic way. Totally. And a lot of good things come from it. But yeah. those are skill sets that are built all the way back from St. Ignatius um, school. Like those are all... If, if someone dropped you in there and you hadn't had that kind of... Um, pathway to where you are like you would hit the ground going okay like you had a natural it seems like a very natural tendency
1: within that but even before I mean get back to the family like that's who you know my mom the work like my mom is direct as fuck like she she you know like she is opinionated and she is she is but she's also brilliant my dad is brilliant right my dad like what I get from my dad I think is like versus my mom is like my dad is a genius my dad though like he will not speak unless he has something to say, right? He is not speaking just to speak. Like he will, he will, (laughs) he comes when he's ready to to say what he wants to say because he has something to say. And I think like that's another piece of this is like, it's not about bullshit. You can, everybody bullshits, but it's not about filling the room with air. It's not about talking to be heard. It's about like adding, being likable, adding quality ideas and quality conversations um, and not feeling like you have to be the one that's being heard all the time, um, I think it's all part of that same puzzle. And like, I think that's you know that's a very workman thing. You're, you know, we haven't even talked about your dad. Like, I feel like your your dad was a unbelievable, unbelievable, and like you know, I never really had a grandfather like in my life, right? Like, your dad has like been my grandfather, and my so dad. like, there's so much I've gotten from him too that like I would have never had.
0: Well, you know, you know, listen, our family and so my mom was just here my dad will be here next week um that's the genesis those two are the genesis for this whole thing you remember i wanted to interview um who i called Gigi, but grandma um my brother doug interviewed her so we have that on tape we're gonna see what we can do to edit that into something consumable but um we're blessed with family our parents have both been married forever forever yeah that's powerful my parents are both incredibly hardworking, great role models, super smart. You just said the same thing about yours. Like All of those things, um, proximity is power, the ability, to if you look back over your life, like a gratitude, like, fuck am I grateful in 800 ways um, to be where I am today because of them and what they've created, and um, I think you're in a very similar boat. All of these things compound to give you, when, you're, when that opportunity knocks, you're ready to jump mm-hmm. because you've had if you weren't, if you hadn't been able to go to that school and you hadn't had, um, that coaching experience or the team captains or like all those things back to the sliding doors, who knows where Charlie would be today. No clue. Yeah. Same thing for me. Who knows? Had my parents not stayed together. You look at all the things that happened in the world. Yep. I'm super grateful. Yeah. Um, I love this, Charlie, like you're connecting dots for me big time right now. Um, I, before we jump full blown back into politics, um, which is kind of the next, not just politics, but the path and where you are. Um, talk about food real quick because mm-hmm. that comes back into where you are today. But yeah. talk about like, how did that, is it just based on what you talked about? Living in cities, walking past all these restaurants, going to eat wherever you want. Is yeah, that but it's also my it?
1: dad. My dad, like my dad. Yes, yes to all of that. But my dad also being a central part of that, which was like, uh, it's become very, uh, the older I get, the more clear it it becomes to me how similar to my dad I am. Um, In one of the, in like, in the main way is just like how I think I choose to experience the world around me, which is like, I just want to like, I just want to be a blanket. Like, I just want to walk through it and witness it. You know, I want it to be like I'm walking through Times Square and I'm just like taking in all the lights (laughs) and all the smells and craziness. I think that's very much what I got from my dad, specifically around food, which was like, you know, I remember like after, my dad was a teacher. Still is a teacher at the school I went to elementary and middle school at. But like, you know, we had an incredible I had the incredible luck of like spending 10 years at the same school as my dad. We would drive to school together every day, right? And that's a whole other conversation. Was that ever like, hard? I just got to ask. No. It was always easy no it was so easy that's rad um because i
0: worked you know with i worked with my dad for 20 years and it it was not easy
1: no it was easy i mean you know it was like maybe it would have been harder if my dad was like my fifth grade teacher yeah like he wasn't he was he was an arts and music teacher he was the music teacher but like you know that's an art yeah for the whole school um with very specific style of teaching i would say that was amazing but um no, it was like you know, and he had his own room, and like I would be able to go down and s- stop by and say hi. And I also, frankly, I got to, I got to get away with shit. Like you know, I could probably get away with stuff that other people couldn't because they'd be like, "Fuck it, it's, dance kid," you know. <laughs> um, but um, you know, like some of my earliest memories are like they're not. It's not school. It's like driving to Clement Street with my dad after school to go pick up a pork bun and like go into like literally the cheapest Chinese butcher in the city and like see what they had. <laughs> and then you know like that was daily and like that was also how my dad that's a reflection of how my dad still shops and grocery shops today which is like and which is how i grocery shop which is it's not like i'm going to cook this thing i'm going to go look out go out shopping for these ingredients it's like i'm going to go out shopping i'm going to find the fucking coolest most interesting stuff i'm going to bring it home okay now i'm home like what do i cook right and so that's i love that by the way and that is a skill that i do not possess Whatsoever. Yeah, I I, love people that do. Yeah, and I think that that is like it's both the reaction, but it's also the it causes and it's the reaction to like a style of cooking that is hyper creative. It forces you to learn. It forces you to like, or allows you not to be stuck in specific recipes and to experiment. I got to get
0: together with my my brother in law, yeah, Robert Stein, Bobby Stein, because he can do that. Like we'll think we have nothing in the fridge, and they'll he'll make a gourmet meal out of. Salting crackers and yeah, a yeah. can of tomato yeah. sauce. Like yeah. it's
1: unbelievable. Yeah, it's like my dad. I, I can't yeah. do it. So I mean that to me, like, yeah, it was it was San Francisco. It was it was the combination of being with a parent like that, um, which was, you know, constantly taking me out to the hole in the wall taco shops in the mission and the dim sum places in Chinatown or Clement Street or the Russian markets in the outer Richmond, or like whatever. And just like trying things, right? And it was never these places all, you know, if a place had an A health rating, we probably weren't going there, <laughs> right you right. know? But not because we were Understood. searching for yeah. that. We were looking just for like authentic, authentic, local, local, local surprising, stuff. interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that's just kind of, that started my, it, it wasn't even like a love, it was just like, that's what I thought of his food. It was like yeah. interesting, creative stuff. Well,
0: I, I would always
1: yeah. like whenever your folks
0: and again, going back to camp she line, like your folks would always come and stay at my parents, still do, stay at my parents' house and I, your dad and my dad would always cook. Cause my dad's got that same kind of cooking yeah, yeah. gene. My mom does too. I, again, I got a lot from them. I did not get that. Yeah. My brother did and his kids did. Uh, but
1: yeah, your dad and my dad would always cook and yeah, gourmet, fantastic yeah. all the time. And that's, you know, that's, that's shaped like everywhere I've lived. Besides D.C., frankly, because that was such so immediate, um, like you said, Koreatown in Los Angeles. Like I moved to Koreatown because of the food. That's wild, right? Like I like I liked it there because it was incredible and vibrant and so different than the rest of L.A. But like it was also because like I was like this is a insane plethora of culinary options and like I could I'm going to get lost in this. Well, you know?
0: what an incredible opportunity and I, a teaser. This comes back to you, but like the fact that you've been able to, again, teaser, merge politics, world engagement, and food yeah. in the super impressive, we're not going to talk about that yet, but it's what an amazing thing yeah. to happen. Yeah, yeah. But let's, So let's do this. We're going to jump right into the politics side of it. I don't know how you got it, but your first, again, I knew you grew up in San Francisco. You talked a lot about our family and your family being very active. Um, but you got your first job that I know first real job that kind of exposed you to big hitters in the political realm. You were driving and kind of why don't you talk about that and who that was? Cause that yeah. was a big, big, big
1: deal. Yeah. So my first like big political job slash first job out of college was I was a staffer for, for Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, the way I got that was a combination of luck and fortunate random connections, which was I actually remember I was out I was going out I was like out at the bars or something in Eugene. I was it was senior Nobody year. Nobody does that. Yeah, senior year, so I was, you know, twenty-one or whatever. And there was a buddy of mine who I used to play little league baseball or sorry, travel ball baseball with, which again, connecting to the sports, like we were not still really friends, but he knew what I was interested in. He was just this guy who he now works for LeB- like runs LeBron James Media Company. Like he's also a killer. Um but I remember him texting me, hey, my mom just told me that like a, a staff assistant spot in Senator Feinstein's office just opened, just wanted to let you know, like here's the intake and in email if you want to send them stuff. And I ran home, literally ran home from the bars, wrote up a cover letter and like fired it off. Um, next morning or something, you know, I, I t- called my mom and dad, I'm sure my mom, uh, used to work with somebody who used to be the, like a pretty senior aide in her state, in the Senator's State Office, so I think that he was able to put in a word for me. Well, and not everybody probably knows, F- Diane Feinstein, if I recall correctly, was born in San
0: Francisco, so, well, so, yeah, mayor so, of San Francisco.
1: So yeah, so I was gonna get to that, which is, so the job itself, and I'll also say, her state director at the time was Sean Ellsburnt. Sean Ellsburn was a power hitter, for, or power player from St. Ignatius, so oh, like it really helped. School. That I made sure I included on my resume. Like, um, he was like the youngest board of supervisor in the history of San Francisco turned state director for Feinstein. So Feinstein, for folks listening, I'm sure like most people know the name. Maybe know she was the uh, you know, R.I.P. Um Senior Serving Center of California. Yeah, passed earlier this year, right? Yeah. Um she bef- you know, has been the senator, I think, for since the early nineties, I think. Um before she was a senator, she was the mayor of San Francisco. Um, that was a result of she was on the board of supervisors when Harvey Milk was assassinated. The same day that Harvey Milk was assassinated, uh, Mary Mo- Mayor Moscone at the time was assassinated. Um, that same day, if you've ever seen Milk, like that's what it's about. She then basically was a, was assigned to be mayor <laughs> or appointed wow. to be mayor as a result of those assassinations. She like you said was a c-
0: I never knew that part yeah, of yeah. the story. I she, never put She that like me was
1: a city kid. She grew up in the city um, and so you know long story short like she is just deeply tied to San Francisco on a personal level, on a career level, on a political level, and even when she was in the Senate um, you know <laughs> representing all of California Decades after she was mayor of San Francisco, she still considered herself like a mayor like like San Francisco was still her baby Got She it. still cared deeply for it, so much so that like well, I'll get into that in a sec so The job that they were looking for was the staff assistant now the staff assistant is um, It is just the lowest level ranking staffer in a Senate office. Most Congress members have that position too. however they also wanted the staff assistant to be her personal aide when she was in San Francisco, which included everything from like driving her around, like you said, to just like being at her side, being her body person basically um, everywhere she went. And it was really, I shouldn't say really important, it was required according to her that this person be a local San Franciscan. Not because they needed a deep policy understanding of the local issues, but because when she was driving around the city, she liked to point at things and like talk about it. And she wanted to have somebody, she preferred having people in the car with her who like she could talk about San Francisco with. And so I love that, by the way. That's yeah. so cool. So like that's and that was the luck, right? Is like I was not an Ivy Leaguer, right? Like normally his jobs to go to like brilliant 4.0 Ivy League kids. Like that was not me. I was a 3-5 University of Oregon. Rugby player, but I, you know, I knew a person in her office. My mom knew one of her former staffers, her chief of staff or state director went to my high school. And I could say in my cover letter, <laughs> I'm a city fucking kid. I know the city like the back of my hand. Oh, you live at the, you live on the, you know, on uh, the Vallejo Street steps. Well, my dad and I used to drive by that every way, every day on the way to school, the way to like pick up like pork buns. <laughs> right. So, like, that was the luck, was like being the city kid, it just timing wise, like I don't think they had anybody else where they're like, this per, Like this kid kind of fits the bill. Might not be the most brilliant guy. <laughs> and So you get this, jump at, so what was that like? And how long incredible. did you do that for? I did it for less than a year and a half. So I did it for, uh, I basically did it until she decided to run again. Mm. And then I said, okay, I'm, I'm over this. Uh, and I shouldn't say I'm over this, I said I, I got what I needed out of this. There was still room for growth, I could have, Gone up a bit, but I couldn't. I couldn't really justify working for her as, as I viewed. Like she, she at that point was very old. Senate terms are six years plus a one to two year campaign cycle. Her deciding to run again would have brought her to, you know, ninety six years old, which I was just like, couldn't back that. No, and the the reality was that like I don't want to say I told you so, but like you know, all respect to her, I'm so grateful for the opportunity she gave me, but like before she passed away, like she was losing her marbles. She had dementia, she had no idea what was going on and she was one of the most powerful people in the country and that was why I left. Um, but so the job itself was incredible. It was like, you know, uh, when she wasn't in California, my job was to sit in the office and take basically calls from constituents. You know, we want her to support this, why is she doing that, thank you for doing this. Um, but I also had a, a what was called a casework portfolio of basically helping California constituents with, you know, specifically veterans um, with issues with the VA or the DOD. Um, But when she was in California, my job was just be with her. And so we would spend our days, I would spend my days with her, whether it was at her house or driving her. um, I'm guessing this was another
0: example of what you shared before about with the Bidens where they're like, who's this kid? Spending all this time hanging out with Diane. Yeah. I mean you know, it was like, it, her,
1: like you jumped into the deep end of the pool really quick. You got dropped in. Yeah. Right? Air dropped in. Yeah. And you know, I think I think it was like I mean the, the my, my staffers that I worked with in Feinstein's office were amazing. I'm still friends with a lot of them. But um you know, I think there was always like there was probably always this feeling of like, are you serious? Like, here's people who have worked for her for years making shit pay Working, you know, 80 hours a I week. I think they
0: make TV shows or movies yeah, yeah. about this yeah. exact,
1: like, who's this and guy? And then I get to just kind of, I'm just kind of dropped in and like, I have more access to her than anybody objectively. Like, that is not up so, for debate. Like, To summarize, yeah, yeah. what did you gain from that experience? So...
0: Because there's no things. way, yeah. you mean, got your PhD in... in in politics, you know, a year out of college to some, yeah. maybe not a PhD, but like you got exposure that you not, could not, It's it was, it wasn't a PhD. What you got was
1: priceless education or it, information. It was priceless education. And, and again, but it was, it was less about like the education of like civics, right? It wasn't like I was, I wasn't going to the hill with her and advising her on policy decisions. It was, it was more of like, Back to like the leadership and coaching, it was like I got to bear witness to like one of the most successful leaders this country's ever seen on a hyper personal level, and see how that person functions when the lights and cameras like are not on them, and when they are. And so, was there a big difference? No, and that was one of the most fat, incredible. There was no difference. Mm-hmm. What you saw on TV was what you totally what, what I night. saw back. You know, um,
0: and osmosis is a big part just by being in the room or being around somebody or. You pick up so much, more than you probably ever recognize.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, again, I, there's a conversation I was having that was similar to this a while back with a buddy, and he asked me a similar question. And, like, you know, one of the things that stuck that I've... So, so she 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 famously was not a lawyer. She never went to law school. But she was the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is, like, the all-powerful legal counsel, basically, in the Senate with power over everything from confirming judicial nominees to, you know, challenging the constitutionality of certain law, like everything. And, um, she, I mean, one of the things I'll never forget is like over time, what I gained from her was just like learning how to, learning how to present my arguments and learning how to converse. (laughs) Um, because, you know, when I, I, was 22 sitting, spending days at a time sitting next to this person, I wanted her to think I was smart. I wanted her to think I wasn't just this like scummy city kid right and like I would say stuff to say stuff and she would back me into corners within seconds right not not in a demeaning way like by asking me questions where I would very quickly realize you know what thinking to myself like why did I just say that what was I trying to do with that what what did I think I was going to get out of this and she would so quickly get me to a point where I realized I had no fucking idea what I was talking about. Why would I think I should be talking about this? So stuff you've now
0: it? adopted the Dan goldenson approach of only speak when you have
1: something valuable to say or you know you know your shit. yeah, or or like. only present ideas that you can back up mm. and defend. that's a smart that um, a very that's very good counsel. yeah, for, right? um but learn it Learn that from you know from uh experience with with this person. and again, you know, I think the relationship we had. Um. Somebody said recently, like, oh, she was a mentor to you. She was not a mentor. That's not what the relationship was. You know, my mentor was like, were like the people in my office. She was like a grandmother figure, right? Like she was like, she. We were spending the days together. we were eating. She would bring me an extra hard boiled egg in the car, right? Like, like, <laughs> and her, her, she wasn't looking for a mentor. She had thousands of staffers. Overdone, right? You know, what she just she decades. wanted somebody she could shoot the shit with. And who when I went, if that person said dumb shit to her, she could slap around and be like, "Shut the fuck! What are you saying?" No, right? That was that's much more grandmotherly than it is mentor. And so that was kind of the relationship. It was hyper personal. It was friends. It was we were friends. We were friends, and um, and uh, yeah. So I think the main thing I learned from her directly was was uh, you know um, debate skills slash just knowing how to present my arguments. But again, not like a legal setting, just like when I'm having a discussion with somebody, when I'm debating a friend or having a conversation with a friend about an issue, not getting mad and feeling like, no, this is you know, explaining how I feel. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's super fascinating. And what an incredible opportunity to be able to
0: engage. And the fact that you can articulate the difference between grandmotherly slappy around and mentoring, even that I think is just kind of supports your EQ, like your recognition of those things. Clearly, that's part of your superpower or, or your... <laughs> your skill set is the recognition of all how this all kind of yeah. works socially or communicatively. Yeah. But I, I would love to dig into it all day, but we can't. So let, let's jump to this. What happened next in the political realm yeah. from that? So was that, was that the springboard or was that a major feather in your cap that allowed you to
1: yeah, continue? It was a ladder. ladder. Uh, it was, um, uh, so, like I said, I was with her for about, like, 16 months, I think. She then made the announcement or the decision to run again, where I was kind of at that point, I was, like... peace out. Peace out. I appreciate you, appreciate this, but that's my sign to go. Um, I had friends living in L.A. I was uh, dating my ex-girlfriend at the time. who was wonderful, but she was living closer to L.A. We kind of were, like, both in a place of, like, well... What do we want to do? Where do we want to go? I wanted to go to New York. She didn't. I had all these friends in LA. I was like, what about LA? So basically I I actually I quit the Senate. Um, took some time off, traveled a little bit, and then I moved when to When you say little, you quit the Senate. Yeah. What do you mean? I left Feinstein's office. Okay. Got I, okay. I I put in my two weeks or a gotcha. month and I I left. Um, so I moved to Los Angeles with no job. And uh, you know, I felt pretty confident at the time, like, with my resume that I would be good. Probably too confident, right? Like, I was still a 24-year-old guy. Like, it was it was a cool thing, but I thought I was the shit. Like, I wasn't. And um, especially coming, like, that was a... If I wanted to move to D.C., I would have been great. <laughs> I would have been the sexiest, you know, I, it would have been an amazing hire. But, like, I was moving to L.A. Like, people don't care. Like, a lot of these media execs are like, who's Feinstein, right? So, um... Uh, I moved to LA, didn't have a job for a while. I moved into Koreatown with a buddy of mine in this shitty little apartment. And uh, I just pounded the pavement. Like, I just, like, I probably applied to 200 places. I, you know, started reaching out to everybody I knew. Got a bunch of offers, but a lot of them were kind of like more local political offers that weren't paying me very well. So basically, to summarize, I ended up getting a job. I, I sent in a random application to a company called Attention, A-T-T-N. And Attention was a, at the time, progressive political media company, digital media company, who kind of specializes in explaining and breaking down complex social and political issues to a primarily millennial audience using, like, video content. Um, which, like, now sounds like, oh, every that's just video content. But, like, six years ago, that was, like, the thing, right? Like, now this Attention... Vice, like these were the companies who were like really realizing like, oh, video content is the future of social media, of the internet, and frankly of monetizing the internet as well. Um, Attention was, the, the the CEO of Attention was Scooter Braun's former partner. Scooter Braun being Justin Bieber's manager, Ariana yeah. Grande's manager. So he came from like a hyper extreme music and entertainment marketing background. Badass. Badass dude, I reached out to him. I emailed him directly. I did some research, and basically sold myself as like I, I pitched them on this. I said, I cut you know, it was, I basically I said to them. My argument was, what people don't understand about the Senate <laughs> is that senators and congressmen and women, when they have ideas and opinions about the world around them, that's not based upon like them reading a bunch of articles and formulating an opinion. It's based upon the fact that they have staff around them. Who are reading those articles and, and, and taking that content, formulating their own ideas, and then presenting that to the decision makers with an, a suggestion of you know a decision to be made? Well, when you have an institution like the Senate or Congress that like isn't paying staff a lot of money, who are those decision makers who are or who are those staff members who are in the inner circle? They're like twenty-two to like thirty-four year olds, right? And, like, how are they getting their news? They're not really reading the New York Times. They might be, but, like, they're watching Vice. They're watching now. This, They're, like, they're consuming online content specifically about these issues. So my argument to them was, like, you guys actually, I don't think you guys understand the impact your work is having. You're not just making cute Facebook videos. Like, you're actually influencing how these people think. Um, And I want to... I want to help you grow that and like build that. And I see that you guys are doing this at the intersection of like media and entertainment, celebrities, A-listers, brands, musicians, and politicians. Like I want to a like get in there with you, but I also want to learn from you guys cuz like you guys are the best at this. And they hired me right away. Started as the executive assistant to the CEO, but he was amazing. He would like you know, I would do all the assistant stuff, but also he would he was fantastic. He brought me into every meeting. He didn't make me feel like a fly on the wall. It wasn't like I was taking notes in the corner. He was like, "This is Charlie. He's here with me.
0: Rad. I didn't know this piece. Yeah, like, yeah. I didn't know that. Like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. magic right Yeah.
1: And so basically, you know, long story short, like within three years, one from like his executive assistant to basically being the chief of staff of that company, which meant functionally like running the C-suite, the strategy and political work for the C-suite. So um, celebrities coming in, the Obamas, um, major brands like, you know, um, Verizon or like T Mobile, like anybody who wanted to do any kind of like politically oriented digital storytelling work um, that came in through the C suite, I then like ran strategy wow. for that. Um, and so through that, I ended up building relationships with like a ton of senators' teams and
0: Biden And you're held
1: ha- at that point? 25. Pretty impressive. 20? 26, 25. Yeah. But 25.
0: Yeah, we're not going to compare. Comparing's not good. I'm not going to compare to you at 25 and me at 25. Let's just say you win in that comparison. No, there's no comparison though. <laughs> but um so that introduces you to big hitters. It
1: introduces me to big hitters, but also it introduces me to like how to think like Brad the CEO. He like thank god for him too, right? Like again, this is one of those kind of like I don't. I didn't appreciate it while I was working him with him as much as I did. Like, thought I think, leader, visionary. Yeah, because frankly, when I was working with him, I, I, there was there was moments where I was like, "Fuck! Like, I want to be in politics. Like, this is this is this entertainment guy, and like, I know he's a badass, but like, it's not it's not you know it's not where I see myself. And like, what he brought the skills. I mean, a just the access he gave me, but also like the the other piece I learned from him was like, frankly, how to network, and not like how to build real lasting relationships. That kind of cross the personal and professional um, so that it wasn't just being introduced and in building, building a Rolodex of these big headers, but it was like becoming their friends
0: but and, and is that how you got introduced because I, if I recall correctly you got chased to some degree by yeah. the
1: Biden campaign
0: so the way thereafter. so yeah
1: so, so what happens is that's basically three years by the end of three years I'm like now like kind of running like I said the C-suite operations and strategy political strategy for these massive projects and um, at this point The Biden team now, they are, um, this is in preparation for 2020. They've kind of built this like apparatus of like digital advisors. They're like, we know we're behind on this. We're old school. Like, we need to take take, like the best like political digital marketers in the world and like tell us what we should be doing to beat Trump, basically. And um, we were, because we did a lot of work in that field and we knew them and we did a lot of work with the Obamas too, we were like on that advisory committee. So, and I was like the representative of us for wow. that, so that's how we. I got kind of plugged into that. Then it was just like they sent us. They actually sent a, a friend of mine who I worked with at Attention a JD that was like, "Hey, we're actually hiring." I'm sorry, JD, job description. Uh, job description. Sorry. So this was and again, so timing wise, this was this was very early on in that campaign. So like the primary elections have not even happened yet, right? There's like I don't know if you remember, but like. There's like twenty Democratic. It's not just Joe Biden. There's like twenty other Democratic candidates, and when it comes to polling, uh, he's at the very bottom. <laughs> like he's losing to everybody. Um, so so you single handedly get credit for Joe Biden getting elected. Well, all your no, because no. But remember, like you said, like I so I got this JD. They they rec- the attention recommended me to them. They're like Charlie's your guy. You should talk to him. And what they were looking for was basically like a a digital person slash brand person, whatever that meant for Dr. Biden, for Jill Biden, the the former second lady, now first lady. They had never done that with her. Like they had never built any type of kind of campaign around her or brand around her. And uh, I, I turned it down. Like we, I went through like months of negotiations, two months of negotiations with them.
0: Remember, your, your whole family was very aware of what was going on oh, in yeah, the yeah, world yeah, at this yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. we
1: definitely were like, wow, Yeah, wow. yeah. and yeah. I, I ended up, after, I mean, I, I, was, I was killing myself. Not, not over saying no, but like this decision was really, well, and what we didn't even talk about here is fast forward like 10 seconds. It's like the whole year before this, I was studying for law, law school. school. Yep. I studied for the LSAT, I took the LSAT, I applied to all the schools. I got massive scholarships to all these law schools. I committed to law school. I actually quit this job. When I quit this job, the CEO came in and was like, "You're fucking insane!" Like, like yes, like defer. Like you are you are running a political department during an election year where every campaign is coming asking us to do work. Like that is a valuable experience to have. Like not telling you not to go to law school. But like put, do it a do, do it a, after this election, and. You know, they convinced me whether that was the right decision or not. They convinced me. So the whole Biden thing wouldn't have ever happened if I had actually gone to law school. I didn't. The Biden, that JD came across my desk about six days after I, after I, um, decided to stay at attention. So anyway, I, um, I turned them down for a couple reasons. A, he wasn't my horse. Like I was not voting for Joe Biden in the primaries. I was a Bernie Sanders guy. Um, I also, um, like I said, he was behind in every poll. Like, I could have made the bet to say, he might not be my horse, but he'll probably win. Therefore, strategically be smart for me to attach myself to this. Like, but he wasn't. Like, he was losing. So I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to, and the the salary was shit. So I was like, no, I'm going to stay at attention. I'm going to keep doing work with all these other candidates and him, get all this experience and, and, and then uh, they made
0: you an offer you couldn't refuse at n- some point?
1: Well, so then a year later, fast forward, I do this now for a year, I stay in L.A., and then a, a year later, he wins the primary. Shocks everybody, right? The whole world, the whole country is like, what just happened? And I think about two days later, and now and we're, now we're in COVID, right? So like oh. COVID hits, now we're in COVID, everybody, you know, I don't need to explain COVID, We all were struggling in our own ways, stuck in our little spaces, questioning if we were living the lives we're supposed to be living. And uh, all of a sudden, I get a text from uh, Joe Biden's senior advisor that just says, "How about now?" question mark. And uh, at that point, it was like all hands on deck. It's a binary option: you either help or you don't. In my mind, you know, we were this was we're fighting fascism. That's how I felt about it. Um. And with COVID it was just like, I was looking for anything to get me out of that world. And like all of a sudden it wasn't just anything. It was like the most fucking extreme possible yeah. thing. And I said, yeah. Um, and a week later I was on the other side of the country, like kind of starting this this journey. Yeah.
0: It, it's uh, it's unbelievable. And again, <clears throat> luck, timing, balls, proximity, decision-making, sliding doors, all those things came into play in spades on this one. And yeah, and especially with your view of the world, your desire to be a part of it, and you get thrown in there, or you get the opportunity to jump in there. It's its stunning. Um, we could go into all kinds of detail, and we just can't from a time perspective. But let's, let's jump ahead. Um, Joe Biden gets elected with yeah. a lot of your help. If there's any key points in there, you know, I think it's really interesting. You talked at the beginning about being part of the staff, the transition staff, capital T. Um, and then you, do you want to talk about, quickly at all about
1: what transpired after sure so i think i think it's important i'll do a quick version of like that campaign once i moved across the country while the staff at that point you know the campaign itself because now the primaries had ended he was the he was the democratic nominee which means not only can you hire more staff but like all of the funding and money from all these other campaigns now start funneling in so they go from barely getting by to like having billions of dollars on hand, maybe not billions, but hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, like I said, thousands of staff, but just somehow I ended up becoming one of about 12 staff who said, we want you to, because it's COVID, um, while the while the campaign headquarters was in Philly, which is where I moved and I thought I was gonna be in Philly, I got a call basically 10 days later, after I moved to Philly that said, change of plans, you and 11 others are moving to Wilmington, Delaware to live in a house about a block away from the Bidens. And like, you are now the traveled team. So I spent the whole campaign flying, you know, across the country every day with Joe Biden. Um, and that was my life. It was, you know, waking up at 4 a.m., flying to Michigan, to North Carolina, to Maine, get back in Delaware at midnight. We've been working all day, so we know how to. No time to work. Sit at the desk, work for two hours, go to sleep, sleep for three hours, do it all over again, and just do that indefinitely. Um, it was insane. We win. Um, we won. Blacked out for a bit because <laughs> it was you just can like only imagine. Um, and then, like I said, yeah, like you said, end up getting a White House offer and um, move to D.C. again. Still in COVID, so everything's like very weird and um. So move to DC and start working in the White House. We get inaugurated on January 20th, that we could do a whole podcast episode on like what that day was like, just back to the West Wing conversation of like that was my first time right, being in there, but it wasn't with a party, it was walking in with the president, right? And like all of a sudden it, it wasn't like we were visitors, it was like this is yours now, like good luck, you know? Um,
0: and that goes for the White House and the country.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was fucking nuts. It was a, that was a crazy, crazy day, um, but <laughs> so basically, what ends up happening is, you know, there are there are probably the most intense background checks in the world to get into this office, and um, what. You know, like I said, I went to a state school. I grew up in a college. I mean, I grew up in a city. I allowed myself to have fun. I never got into any legal trouble. Wasn't it was not. But like, you know, I smoked some weed in my day. I've done some stuff like that. And um, you're given something called an SF eighty six. And because because an SF eighty six is like it's like 160 page background check document. It's everything from we need to know every foreign person you've ever contacted every place you've ever stayed, those dates, every drug you've ever done and the dates of those drugs, who did you do those drugs with, you know, um, and, uh, it comes back. And I, I, you know, I've told some of my, me and others, it's not just me, me and a lot of friends have, are like, specifically around like the drug use, (laughs) frankly, around marijuana. We know that states, states are okay, but at the federal level, weed is still very much illegal. And, um, you know, I haven't smoked in two years because I've been on this campaign. But I'm like, is that okay? Like, should I? You know, um, basically, you know, admit to them that I've smoked some weed back in my day and uh, years ago, a few times. And you know, dabbled in some other things in college, basically. And um, but because the Trump team and their transition was so insane, our background check process was like months delayed. So. I don't fill this out until I'm like months into the white house. All of us. Like I'm already been there. I've been staffing this thing for months. And, uh, um, I end up getting a call one morning from my, our chief of staff on a Saturday. And this guy's a, he's an asshole, but he's, he's nice to me. And, but he's, he's really sorry. I should say he was, he would rarely answer calls in a nice manner. Um, but he said to me, morning Charlie, you know, how are you feeling this morning? And I instantly knew something was up. I was like, I'm fine. He said, uh, I need you to get up, I need you to get a workout in, I need you to drink some coffee, because uh, today's about to be like one of the worst days of your life. And I knew instantly, I was like, didn't pass the background check. I knew my background, I was like, it had to be the weed basically. Um, or the college, you know, drug, experimental drug use or whatever. And- uh, The typical
0: stuff that- yeah. People do. I mean. and,
1: and yeah, and the stuff that, you know, yeah. And um, crazy, you know, and that was on a Saturday morning and two hours later, I'm on a zoom call with like our chief of staff who's in tears crying and like White House legal counsel. And they say, Charlie, you know, due to your, your marijuana use and some other things, uh, uh, we need you to resign like effective immediately. And I was given no option. You know, it's the White House. It's like, I'm not, I don't know how to fight this. Um, and so basically, you know, I left the White House, I left my job on a Friday at 11 p.m. And by Saturday at 1 p.m. the next day, I was, I had no job. Poof. And, uh, you know, it was insane. I mean, it was like, I had just spent a year on this train going 500 miles an hour And I've left my family, I'm 3,000 miles away from everything I know, my career has, like everything in my universe, my girlfriend, like our our relationship is far over, right? Like everything is different. And I'm now in this city that like frankly, while I worked in politics, like I never had a desire to fucking live in DC. And all of a sudden it's like kicked off, boop, kicked off the train and I'm like dusting myself up and looking around, I'm like where the fuck am I? What what was that? What is this? What just happened? Um and you know, this is after also like everyone beyond like our family, right, who's excited and thrilled about this opportunity for me, like everyone I've ever met is like popping up through the woodwork, texting, you know, like somehow it's one of those things that like just everybody in your universe somehow hears about. Congratulations, this is incredible. And so all of a sudden I'm like, What? <laughs> like not to mention yeah. you know, it was, it you was know, crazy know super
0: yeah. running on a super liberal campaign base oh yeah and for that like it was just mind-numbing from the outside world so yeah yeah. Listen, yeah we were all devastated by it but it takes you on another path yeah so let's talk about where you are today again we could go your story's so rapid like today yeah you were you were working you had two jobs going for a while with Google. Yeah. And then you've got this other one that you're still passionately involved in. Yeah, that ties Yeah, politics and food. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to close it out. With some sure. S- yeah.
1: So I want to hear
0: about like, and this is another one of those. I don't know. I know who he is, and I've been yeah, yeah. able to Google some. Yeah.
1: What? And here's so, the amazing
0: thing. I'm like five days younger than the guy. Right. He's accomplished a <laughs> fair number of things. Right. Staggering.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what are you doing? Well, um, so. So what I am now is like I guess you call it a consultant, an advisor. I don't know. But like I, I have multiple clients who I work with on their kind of public engagement strategies, media strategy. That's everything from like digital and this content. is through This is through myself. This is as a this is as I work for myself. Um, but also like, you know, what I would say called like executive positioning of like helping principals Big CEOs electeds build their own brands separate from their companies or separate from their campaigns or whatever. Um, and, um, yeah, my, the main person I work with is Jose Andres, who is a, um, kind of like world renowned chef, but like one of the biggest global humanitarians right now. And, um, runs one of, I've said before the biggest, but it's not the, one of the biggest food-centric NGOs in the world. It's called World Central Kitchen. Um, now it's about a fundraising operation of about 500 to 600 million dollars a year, distributing over four million meals per year in crisis zones. So, been on in Ukraine since the day after the invasion, you know, Gaza, Israel, Afghanistan, Puerto Rico. Like, if it's a political crisis, Terrorist crisis, environmental crisis, earthquake, tornado, tsunami, terrorist attack, like, were there.
0: And they, and this is a built out operation that
1: can so go. So now it is, right? But this thing started, this thing started as Jose. Jose was just, Jose was a big time celebrity chef basically about 10 years ago, Spanish chef, um, with a lot of restaurants, but he was, he was no different than like an Emerald Levine kind of thing, like TV guy with a bunch of restaurants. And, um, He started doing this on his own. Him and a buddy would like literally fly on their own into these crisis zones and just find, like start finding kitchens and just like cooking and slowly, but surely they got, you know, a couple of volunteers and more volunteers and hired staff. And within this time span, it's grown from a $0 fundraising thing of, it's just him to, like I said, $600 million a year, global, um, network slash, um, structure, that has the staff and operations and funding to get everywhere instantly and feed. And because of that work, he is now a political force, right? And something that not only is a political force, but like he's a political force that Republicans can't fight against, right? Like it's it's easy for somebody to, you know, if you're a Republican or a Democrat to like, fight against or push back against an activist from the other side. It's a lot harder when you're somebody who's just feeding people. Indeed. Doing good work right? to the world. Um, watch out. Um, so um, uh, I, re- I met him and his chief of staff on the Biden campaign when I was working with the first lady. We did an event in Florida. As, he, he was a, a big surrogate on the campaign for like Spanish-speaking audiences, Puerto Rico, Cubans, like those type of communities. Um, After I left the White House, I did a couple other jobs where I I was a strategy director for a progressive political firm And then I ran actually I I ran a campaign in New York for a state young queer progressive state assembly member Um, After that was all over uh, I Reached out to Jose's chief of staff basically similar to how I did with attention CEO I just kind of emailed him and I was like, you know, not sure if you remember me, but uh This is where we met. This is what I've done. This is what I do and I will say also, like, like while all this shit happened with the White House, like, it was, I was still close with everybody, right? There wasn't this, like, get the fuck away. Everybody, everybody was horrified. That's by why
0: you happened. got to go to the Christmas party. Yeah,
1: everybody, like, loves, like, we're still, like, and I still do work with it, right? So, like, I still, it wasn't like I was like, shit, I can't even talk. It was like, no, that's still my world. I can still proudly wear that and, and talk about it. And I basically said to Jose's chief of staff, you know, I don't know what you're trying to build. But I know policy, I know politics, I know how to work with very powerful people. I can see this very powerful person who is like getting bigger and bigger every day. I can only assume you don't have a personal office team under him who's like working on his public engagement and his media strategy and his political engagement. I'm sure you have incoming from every congressional office asking him for meetings and photos and <coughs> sign offs on op-eds. like. I'm assuming you have nobody helping you with that. Like, Let me know if you need help. Because frankly, like, I would love to find the intersection of like federal global politics and food. I've never worked in food, but I love it. So if you need help, let me know. And he called me back. He's like, let's get on the phone. How and, long ago uh, was that? A little over a year ago. How's that going? It's fantastic. Love that? Yeah. It's like... You know, it's I mean it's incredible. It's like it's exactly that. It's it's, it's a, simple. It's is it a,
0: a, a meeting of your passions? Yeah. Yeah. What a and, wonderful
1: and position. Meeting to be in. of my passions both on the professional level, but also like personal, which is like I get to take instead of sitting at a in a corporate office or on the hill, taking a meeting in a suit and tie, we're eating we're sitting down at a Michelin restaurant talking over food, but having those same policy and strategic discussions. You know, so it's not just about the work; it's no. also like how we do the work, because yeah. everybody is so food centric. Um, but with that too, it's also like you know, I pitched them as being more on the political side, but like through my attention, through my experience at attention in LA, I have all these years of like high class, um, kind of like media sales and media strategy experience that I never really thought about a lot when I was in LA, but that people in DC and DC don't have. And so, what I've actually ended up doing for them, which is more than I thought, it was different than what I thought I was going to do, was like helping them rebuild their media operation. And by media operation, again, digital content, but also selling TV shows, books, movies, HBO, Docs, like, and especially bringing in brands and trying to monetize that work because that's just something they haven't done before. And I'm like, oh, well, let me. I've show done you. that. I used to. It's crazy. I used to do and, that. And
0: and how old are you, Charlie? Thirty. I just
1: turned thirty. Thirty.
0: Son of a gun. Super impressive. Listen. I would love to go so much deeper into all this because there's so much good stuff there, but I think we've captured the majority, and, and we are pushing up against a hard, a hard exit. Let me say this: it is so cool to get the story and connect the dots because again, I think even our family, they know we know bits and pieces of both uh, the genesis of your interest in this stuff and how you got there but. None of us, other than your parents, I think, have yeah. connected all the dots. So it's really, really cool. And for anyone to get to a place where you are right now, which is passionately merging your, your interests in a way that are both doing good things for the world, are shining a light on, on things that need light shined on. And dude, you're 30 years old. Let me ask you this. 20, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, magic wand, what would you be doing? Anything. What, what do you
1: think? it's it's honestly it's not even it's not very career oriented it's not it's not because i'm like i want to be retired but i don't i actually like i talked to a financial advisor the other day they're like when do you want to be retired i was like i don't i like what i do actually it's not really on my mind i love the work i do um i'd be i'd be doing a similar thing to what i'm doing now honestly i'd be i'd be wandering around eating good food Working for and with people that I find incredibly fascinating and influential, not in gross ways, not not being not working with them because it's close being close to power, working with them because they are influencing the world and having impact on the world in ways that I love and look up to. And um, doing that in a way that allows me still to have the autonomy and the lifestyle to be a city kid, like wandering around and picking it, you know, see health score <laughs> fried fish sticks on the street. Like that's, that's what I love. And, um, you know, I'm sure that those goals or that those ideas will, will, will adjust and change. But, um, in this current situation, like in the short term moment, like this is, it's a pretty good situation. And, um, I love being in New York. I love having the ability to fly back and see you and fly back to LA and see my parents in San Francisco and travel the world. And um, for as long as this period lasts, I'm pretty happy with it.
0: Dude, so rad. Let me say this. Congratulations on being where you are and where you want to be. And as as the generation above, seeing people like you in the space that you're in, making an impact, supporting people that are doing good things, this is what this country needs. This is what we need. We need people that we can look at like you that are young, energetic, passionate about helping the world be a better place, starting right where we are. Dude, keep doing what you're doing. It we love it. Yeah. I love you, brother. Thank you, you so too, much man. for being here. Thank you for having Super me. Super cool. This is fucking awesome. Give me a big one.
1: Love you, man. Thank you. You.